Father, we give you thanks for another Sunday morning together to come into worship, to encourage each other, to be convicted and encouraged by your word, to give our time and our resources. Father, I thank you that your desire to meet with us here is just as strong as your desire to meet with us anywhere, all week. But there's something that happens when the saints come together. And so I pray that this would be a morning that just changes all of us in such an incredible way. God, may we not settle for what we think might happen, but may we long for what you want to happen. All ages, God. God, do a great work as only you can. Convict and encourage that we might look more and more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. So the key verses for this, uh, this morning are, is Ruth chapter 1, 19 to 22. We're going to get there at some point. Um, but remember that the book of Ruth starts right after the book of Judges. And the last verse of the book of Judges is this. And it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We kind of brought up that, that truth last week. So there's no king telling him what to do. You just kind of do whatever you feel like doing. So whatever's right for you, do it. Whatever's right for me, I'll do it. <clears throat> and friends, this has come up a lot. I would say even as we've been in the word the last few months, especially, talking about this idea of objective truth, that there's absolute truth, and that a society cannot continue, it cannot withstand itself if all of a sudden everyone just does however, or does whatever they want to do or lives however they want to live. It can't work. That is why God set up the concept. He created truth. And he set up commandments that are for our good. And we start looking to the scriptures and saying, well, I like that one, but not that one. And I like that one, I like that one, and not that one. And we start looking at Jesus going, yeah, but did he really ever talk about that? But, and it's like we look at the red letters in the book and say, he never said anything about that. But we forget that he wrote the whole thing. He wrote the whole book. And so he did speak on it. We look, to, we look to the scriptures for truth because to just live based upon our preferences, guys, society will just completely unravel. And as I read and, I, and I'm looking at things that are going on around, not just our nation, but around the world, there seems to be an unraveling. And yet I don't know that I'm the ultimate pessimist. I actually, I actually think I'm more of an optimist because I think, I keep, I, pray, I keep praying this, God, would you make this the season of your revival? The only thing that comes with revival is persecution and so are we willing to go through that? That revival would come no matter what because we actually believe in the necessity of people coming to Jesus. You see, in the book of Ruth, we find ourselves right in the middle of civil strife, national upheavals, and international concerns. With all those things that are happening all over the place in this book, it's there that we find God who gives us a story of ordinary people who are facing ordinary things. See, Ruth started off this way in verse, verse 1 and 2 of, of chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilion. And there were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now remember, all these massive things are happening here in the book of Judges. If you ever just want to, 
If you ever want to not be bored, just read the book of Judges. If you want to see how depraved and jacked up humanity is, read the book of Judges. We are a bunch of whack jobs. And so when you read the book of Judges, you just sit and go, wow, we are that depraved. We are that depraved. We are that sinful. Outside of Christ, that's how bad we can get. It's in the middle of all those massive things that are happening that we see in the very beginning in verse one. Isn't it great to know as massive things are happening in the world, God notices a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Like we can look and go, there's nine billion-ish people on the planet right now, but right now he knows that there is you in this place in Claremont. And he could, we could apply that to every single person. And when I say single, I mean literally every single human being God knows in the midst of everything that's going on. Not just from a distance looking at this massive amount of people, but so intimately he sees the single person. The man, the woman, where you're from, and what's going on. See, God noticed the ordinary. And I know we have an extraordinary God and we think that he's only involved in the extraordinary, but friends, that's not true. He's involved in all of it. And what I think happens very often is we begin to think that, well, I'm not as extraordinary as that person. Followers of Jesus, true or false, we can be just as guilty or be taken over just as much as anyone else who doesn't know Christ by this idea of comparison. Like they do that, but I don't do that. And so they, they must be more important. And friends, it happens in the ministry and it happens in the church. It's like, well, I don't have that position. I don't have that ministry or that calling or those giftings. And so since I don't have those things, I'm not as important as they are. And I love the fact that here in this, here in this passage so far, God notices a man in Bethlehem in Judah because he notices everyone. I wrote this in my notes, that God steps into our ordinary because you're worth it. Like, why would he do it? Is he just bored? He's up in heaven, all the angels keep singing, they just don't stop bowing, they're even throwing crowns toward the throne, and Jesus is like, I gotta get out of here. I gotta go hang with them. I gotta go hang with some people because I'm getting bored. I wanna watch a show. I mean, is that what it's really all about? Or, is, or does Jesus, does God take steps into the ordinary where we are? Because he deems us worth it. Guys, if ever a point, if you're going through something that just didn't seem to fit the bill, like right now you're going through something that's more difficult than you imagined it should be. And you're sitting there going, okay, you keep saying that God loves and God cares and God knows and God is here and he sees it all. But you, you're, you're saying all this, but I'm not experiencing it. I'm not feeling it. I'm not seeing it in my own little world and what we're facing. How can you tell me that God loves me? Here's how I can tell you that God loves you. And you always go back to this one symbol every single time you begin to question whether or not he does. Ready for it? It's the cross. The cross is God's declaration that you're worth it. That if nothing else ever happens, if he doesn't bless in any other way, if things get harder than easier, we always go back to the cross. Because it's at the cross that we meet Jesus, God incarnate, the son of God, the son of man, hanging, taking the wrath of God for us and because of us, in our place, dying the death that we should have died. 
all because he thinks we're worth it. He loves us. Guys, maybe the circumstances aren't fitting right now, but the cross is always God's declaration that you're worth it. It's him declaring through the universe and throughout all of time since he took the cross. Guys, you've been dri driving along and all of a sudden you just notice something that makes a cross. I'm not saying it's like, the, like the, you know, maybe the cross on the top of a church building. Okay, I get that. But I can't tell how often I'll be driving behind, I'll be driving in traffic and then there's one, one of those tow trucks and it's one of those where the back looks like a cross. And I notice it every single time. I don't notice the truck, I just notice the cross. It's not because I'm hyper-spiritual, it's because we're in traffic. What else are you gonna look at? But you see this cross and it's this reminder. And there's times where it's been, it's time, there's times where I've seen it and I've, and I've needed to see it in that moment because you ever wonder, do you ever just sit there and go, God, do you really love me? Because I know what I'm thinking right now. And I know how I treated that person yesterday. And I know I feel like I'm failing you more than I'm actually living in victory. Like, do you still love me, right? Do you ever doubt? Do you ever question whether or not God loves? And if you do, can I just encourage you that you're not alone? And so what if we began to just ask, it's not for a sign. I don't know that we always have to ask for a sign, but we just keep talking to the Holy Spirit. But what if every once in a while, God just likes to spoil his kids to make sure that we know it? Guys, the cross is his constant declaration. You're worth it. I wrote this in my notes. If you want to be part of God's miraculous, be, be faithful in the mundane because that's what God prefers. Why do I say that? Because we live in a culture that has this insatiable craving for celebrity. See, there's extraordinary, then there's ordinary. There's those all, isn't it, isn't it amazing that you actually had to kind of make it into Hollywood at some point to be a star, and now you pretty much, if you can get a good enough camera, and you can, you know, create your own little storyboard, and you can throw yourself on YouTube, and then we have these people that are called the YouTube sensations, and they become celebrities with millions of followers. It's almost like they've become more celebrities than the Hollywood celebrities, but it's this constant comparison about who's doing what more. Isn't it amazing how social media has kind of brought that straight into our face? Because I mean, no one here is guilty of looking at the pictures of other people's lives and wondering why yours can't be like that, right? Why is it they're always on vacation? You know who they are? They're always on vacation. They're always going somewhere and it looks so much more fun than my backyard. And their house is always immaculate. I mean, there's their kids and they're just sitting there enjoying life, having a popsicle, not, not having any of the popsicle on the, on the sofa, just all sweet and nice and perfect and clean, but they never take the picture of the things behind them where everything's all jacked up. And so we compare their fake lives to our real ones and we think that we're not living the same life that they are. All the while, we need to come to a realization that maybe those that we think have it all together aren't really showing who they really are in the first place. And not just they, but maybe we are just as guilty. Do you find yourself comparing yourselves with others rather than finding out who God says that you are and living in the reality of who he says you are? 
I feel like a lot of times we're just trying to one-up each other. And so I've got to keep doing these big things so that I'm noticed. I'm, God, I want to do these massive things for you so that you know that I'm about you. And so, hey, I know I can't preach to thousands at Angel Stadium, but I'm going to do this thing. But I really hope that's enough because I know that's much better. At least that's how we think, right? And isn't it in the States we always have to have something big to make sure that it's a God thing? And yet, how often do you read in the Gospels where Jesus leads, leaves the crowds to go deal with the one? It's almost like the crowds are on the way to help the one. Guys, that's the reason I ask every week. Hey, who's the one? God, who's the one this week? Like, what if we just got away from that idea? We always have to be doing something massive and we just went back to just being faithful. Faithful for the one. Because all of us can, we can help and deal with one, right? So that's why I wrote in my notes, if you want to be part of God's miraculous, be faithful in the mundane, because that's what God prefers. It's like, I want to see the miraculous. Well, just be faithful in the mundane. Nobody notices. I know it's so freeing. And it's not like while you're doing it, I got to take a photo so I can post this for the world to see. I want to challenge those of you. If you post everything, take a week off. If you take your child to the doctor or the ER, take a week off from posting. It's like, isn't it weird? Like, what if I walked into your hospital room? Most of the time in the hospitals, we're not looking all that great. We're kind of in our worst. I mean, don't get me wrong, the pajamas are kind of nice because you're just naked and laying under this sheet that ties in the back, but you can't get up because your butt will show, so you can't do that. So it's like, but then people come, it's like, let me take a picture and let me post it for the world. What if we just took a break? What if we stopped comparing? And what if we just stayed faithful in the mundane and the ordinary? Because in the midst of the world and all, that was, all the chaos that was going on, God noticed a man in Bethlehem, in Judah. I love that. Parents, dads and moms, just be faithful in loving your kids. Yeah, but that's not, it is, if not the greatest, one of the most important, no, let me switch it. It is the most important discipling moment of your lives. Like what you're doing is not just taking care of some kids and running them around and trying to stay sane in the process. It's you investing in those little ones that God has entrusted to you to teach them about Jesus to set kindling around their hearts, that when the Holy Spirit decides to set it aflame, you've done your part, and when God does it, you pull back and you go, all praise to you, God. Do you see it as a discipleship, a discipleship process with them, or just parenting? Because there's no such thing as just parenting. It is a high call. Do you see it? Not a comparison, because I'm having to do this with my kids, I don't get to do. And what if for a moment you just go, because I'm doing the most important thing that God has called me to do right now, I won't do that. Brian, if you keep talking like that, you won't get volunteers. I don't want volunteers. I don't like the word volunteers. 
I want the family of God following where God leads us all to go. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will put it on our hearts what we're supposed to be doing. All that I'm asking all of us to do is be sensitive and say yes when he says go. But never to guilt people into it. For those of you that sit there and go, oh gosh, this whole time, like my whole life, I thought I'd be like, quote unquote, in the ministry. And isn't it amazing that phrase in the ministry means I'm gonna have a job for Jesus getting paid. That's what in the ministry means. Guys, the problem with that phrase is that those who are in the ministry, okay, so I'll use myself. I'm quote unquote in the ministry. I, this is my job. And so what happens is, hey, you're in the ministry, so I'm not. You're higher, I'm lower. Guys, that is not true. This is something that God has entrusted to me. Thank you for your, thank, guys, thank you for your generosity that I can call this my quote unquote my job. Oh, but what a joy it is to get to pastor and to get to lead and shepherd this community. But all of us are in the ministry and all of us are in the ministry wherever God has placed us. Teachers, you're on the front line. This is not a lesser call, it's just as high a call. Thank you for your engagement with students because you love Jesus and you teach them stuff. Whatever subject you're teaching, thank you that you do it. Those of you who own businesses, thank you and be faithful. And when you're meeting people as they're coming and show them the love of Jesus, do you realize that God is bringing people to you for the purpose of impacting the kingdom of God through your faithfulness? Frontline front line responders, Thank you for your service and your ministry. Young people, those of you who like, well, I'm, I'm only in school. You're not just only in school. Welcome to your mission field. You got hundreds, if not thousands of other students on your campus. Guys, if, students, if I walk onto your campus, they don't come running up going, dude, you are so cool. They usually walk past <laughs> wondering, why is the old guy here? Who's that guy? But you are on your campus for such a time as this to impact your friends and those that aren't your friends for the cause of Jesus in a way that I can't. For those that say, Brian, we made it, we're retired. Yeah, but you're not done. It's not like once, okay, if you, once you retire from your job, then you can just kind of chill. No, you got more free time than all of us. It's like, no, I don't. I got to take care of grandkids. Take care of grandkids and see it as discipling your grandkids as they grow up to know Jesus. Brian, we're hitting some trips. Then be a missionary. How sick is that? It's like we love traveling. Be a missionary wherever you go. Bring up Jesus in one conversation. Woohoo! Just be faithful with what God has brought you to. Be faithful in the role that he's given to you in this moment. There's no such thing as they're in the ministry and I'm not. They're the pros, we're not. Friends, we are all called to the same mission. We're given the same Holy Spirit, anointed and empowered by the God of the universe to impact the world for Christ. That sounds a lot different than just showing up to church and setting up some chairs, setting up some tables, just do the volunteer work. Guys, I don't, that's why I don't like the phrase volunteer because it sets up a hierarchy of those who do the real work and those who don't. Friends, just be faithful. Be faithful and mundane, then God will make sure that you're in the front row seat to the miraculous. You may sit there and go, but I don't know if I really believe that. 
I feel like my life's kind of humdrum. There's this quote that I heard. I don't know the, I don't know the person who wrote it, but he said this. Tell me how lofty God is to you, and I will tell you how little he means to you. You're like, wait, 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 that doesn't matter. That doesn't make sense. So God is massive, like he's lofty. He should mean more. But their, their point was this. As lofty as God is, if he's too lofty, then it means that maybe you don't love him as much as you do, or maybe he doesn't care about you as much as you thought that he did because he's way out there, but he's not personal. And what we're seeing so far in this passage, just at the beginning, we haven't gotten to 19 yet. God sees the man in Bethlehem, in Judah, and he sees their need, and God has a plan in all of it. You guys ever heard of Fred Mitchell? Me either. I have no clue who he was. So I just listened to a person talk about Fred Mitchell. And, so I was like, and it, honestly, I was sitting there going, why am I listening about Fred Mitchell? <laughs> and he's just reading these things, and it just sounds kind of boring. So I just thought, you know what, if I had to listen to it, I'm going to make you listen to it. And so this is, this is what it is. It's only a few pages. I'm just joking. It's not that long. But it says this. The abiding message of Fred Mitchell's life is that he accomplished no great thing. His name was linked with many Christian organizations, but he was not the founder. He, he was the founder of none. He, teen, he turned the feet of many into paths of righteousness, but not more than others of his contemporaries. He made no spectacular and inspiring sacrifices. He effected no reforms. For the first 45 years of his life, the pathway he traversed was similar to that of thousands of other moderately successful businessmen. From village school to pharmacy would have been an appropriate summing up of his, of his outward course. On that ordinary humdrum track, however, he walked with God. Climbing steadily in spiritual experience, this then is a story of an ordinary man from a village home with working class parents who spent the greater part of his life as a pharmacist in Yorkshire and who walked with God. Friends, it's that phrase, walked with God. You say, well, how important is that to God? Well, you go to Genesis chapter five. It'll be up here on the screen. Genesis chapter five, verse 21. We, hear, we meet a guy named Enoch. Friends, this is all we know about Enoch. And he made it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. We don't know anything else about Enoch except what I'm going to read to you right here. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. If anything, let's give him props for that. At 65, he became a dad. That's exhausting. Guys, I was, in, I was 30 when I, when I, I, was, I, was, I was a young pup. We had kids and I was still exhausted and I still am. But to hit it up at 65, like to become a parent at 65? Are you kidding me? And then your kid is Methuselah, who's the oldest person who's ever lived, like 969 years or something like that. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Do you hear the phrase that's repeated? Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Is that not the best way to go? You just walk with God and God's like, I just really want you up here. So you don't die, he just sucks you up into heaven. Guys, that's fantastic. He's like, well, he didn't do anything. All I know is he, he must have been married and had some, had some babies. That's it. And he walked with God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse five says this, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. But before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Why did he please God? We don't know. We don't know what he did, except he what? Walked 
with God. And maybe for some of you, as long as you've walked with God, you need to hear this. God is pleased with you. Guys, the comparison game. It's painful. Until we live in who we really are, that's based upon Jesus, we can get discouraged because the comparison leaves us empty because we don't measure up. There's a woman by the name of Sevilla D. Martin. And she wrote this song back in 1905 that maybe some of you will, you will recognize it as I begin to read it, not to sing it, but to read it. Why would I feel discouraged? And why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? And my constant friend is he. Here it is. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Maybe for some of you, you'd think, I don't know if I can agree with that. And I don't think that she wrote that in 1905 thinking that over a hundred years later, people would still be singing her song. They maybe say, I just don't feel like he's watching me. Brian, I don't feel like he's watching over me. I feel like he's just watching me from a distance just to see what happens. Ruth chapter one, verse 19. So the two of them, this is Ruth and Naomi. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Wow, that's a pretty honest statement, isn't it? Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me my delight. That's what Naomi means. My delight or pleasant don't call me that. What you should call me is bitter. Guys, there's something, there's something tragic that happens to us when our circumstances begin to define who we are. Because I'm going through something difficult, this is now who I am. Don't call me Naomi. Call me, call me bitter. And friends, it's been 10 years that's right, is this, is this Naomi? Because she looks different. I mean, 10 years prior, can you imagine? She meets her husband. They have some kids. It's like, I oh, remember when we, remember when, well, I don't know if they did it that way, but just let's put it into our, our culture and our time. This is where you proposed. How often they have those conversations when she looked at her, remember when you proposed and what you did? Ladies, remember when your, remember when your husband proposed? Did he do a good job? I hope so. Even if not, props to you because you're wearing his ring. That's awesome. <laughs> but remember the case of those? I remember, remember, that, remember when we had, our, like, we had our kids? Remember the park? Remember when Tyler went down the slide? Or remember when Dylan started playing basketball like three before anything? He's shooting the ball. He's shooting better than dad. Remember, remember this? Remember his first day of kindergarten? Remember, remember all these things? And now we have to leave? See, a famine hit Bethlehem and all that had happened and all the memories that were there. And you say, but this is home. And there's commentators that said, they, go, they disobeyed the Lord. And I don't know whether they, they did or I know they weren't supposed to be really mingling with Moab. 
But I also feel for them, because what would I do as a parent and as a husband? Wouldn't I want to care for my family? Do you think it broke their hearts to have to leave everyone and everything that they knew? Guys, Bethlehem of a couple hundred people. This isn't a massive metropolitan area. This is a couple hundred people. To leave everyone and everything that you know to go. And you thought it would turn out better. But Naomi loses her husband. And then her boys get married. It's like, oh, there's some hope. Remember, remember the wedding? It was so great. And then both your sons die. Isn't it amazing that when she got back, they accept something there goes, is this really her? Is this Naomi? Because isn't it amazing how 10 years can look different based upon what those 10 years have been filled with? You ever notice presidents who go into the office before, like when they go in, they have normal colored hair most of the time. And then when they come out, they're gray, except for Trump, like his is still that. But it's like the rest, it's like, remember when Obama went in, he just had black hair and he comes out, he's all gray. Guys, I used to have red hair. Like I wanna keep saying I'm a redhead, but one, I'm bald, so I can't really live on that anymore. And I used to have it in my, on my chin. And now my boy's like, you just got all this gray on your chin. I'm like, I know, it's because of you. <laughs> That's why they're so good. Guys, 10 years of crisis and letdown and bitterness can cause so much, quote unquote, what? Aging, right? So can you see why all of a sudden as they're coming in, the women are going, wait, is that Naomi? Is that her? The whole place is stirred up because two people showed up. That's when you know it's a small town. But did you notice Naomi's theology? Look at it again, verse 20. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? When you see the phrase God Almighty or Almighty, it's the name of God known as El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. And so she says, okay, I went away full, but like the Almighty, the one who's supposed to provide and protect, didn't. How is this a positive theology? What I'm, what I'm impressed with is this. I think today this is what happens. Calamity and crisis happen. And one of the first things that people do is go, boom, there's no God. But with her, no, the Lord has. She's going to go, but Brian, I don't like this part of the Bible. Do I think that God threw all this at her? I don't think so. It doesn't say it doesn't say in the passage that God unleashed his wrath because of her, because of her disobedience, Elimelech's disobedience. It doesn't say anything. It just says that life happened and it was pretty bitter for her. But would God ever do that to us? Guys, there's this phrase or this word, this concept, and I believe it comes from this, like the idea is scriptural. When we talk about the sovereign rule of God, that God is in complete control of everything. He's in charge. Like even when it comes to him and the enemy, so him and Satan, it's not like Satan's really strong, but not quite as strong as God, just a little bit less. He's a little weaker than God. God's ultimate in strength. It's not like they had this battle where sometimes Satan wins and sometimes God wins. Satan, even now, 
having some kind of rule on the planet, even Satan is under the sovereign rule of God. And that God in his sovereignty is so good at being God that he can use his enemy for his own glory and purposes. Because that's the God we serve and worship and follow. Shouldn't that cause us to maybe take a breath? To kind of sit there, instead of sitting there going, okay, if he's sovereign, then why doesn't he? He doesn't do what we tell him to do at the moment we tell him because he's sovereign and perfect and eternal and his plans are always better than ours. Where we want the quick fix, God wants ultimate health. Trust him. He's got it. But Brian, what she said, I know, and I have never heard God's sovereignty described this way. See, there's the smiling side of God's sovereignty where we like it. But do we appreciate and thank God for the frowning side of his sovereignty or the dark side, quote unquote, the dark side of his sovereignty where it doesn't all play out the way that we thought? Is it in those moments where we sit there and go, God, you're failing? Or do we actually still believe that God is sovereign? Psalm 119, verse 67 and 68. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Guys, did you see that? Before I was afflicted, this is what I did. But now, so you tell me, before I was afflicted, but now I obey his commandments. What is it that drew the writer of this psalm into obedience to God's commandments? Was it not his afflicting him? My show of hands, if you, well, no, not, not if you feel like it. Show of hands. How many of you came to Christ because he introduced you to a crisis where you actually needed to turn to Jesus? Now, for those that say, not me, okay, that's fine. It's not like, I don't have that. I need, to, I need to make it up so I can say I have it next time I'll raise my hand. Guys, I'm convinced that God will do whatever it takes, whether it feels good or not, to bring us under the lordship of the sovereign, perfect, loving, gracious, merciful God. Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and then catch this, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Brian, I don't like these. I do. Because here's the thing. What it shows me is that life is not just dumb luck. Good or bad, God sees the man in Bethlehem in Judah. And God is involved intimately in every aspect of one's walk and life. And whether we want to say that God allowed it or brought it, but I know that the psalmist says, in your faithfulness you afflicted me. But you see, it connects God's afflicting to the faithfulness of God. Psalm, or I'm sorry, Philippians uh, chapter one, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. As much, of, as much of a gift as it is for us to know Christ. Remember, he calls, he woos, he initiates. He's the one who called us before time began. Our gift from God. God gives us this gift that we might believe in him. 
That same type of attitude not only has been gifted to you that you would what? That you would know Christ, but in the same way that you might suffer for his sake. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Say, Brian, this is heavy. I know, but catch this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, as I said it, maybe you don't see his good in it yet. And what do I say? It's because he's not finished with it yet. What if you don't see it this side of heaven? He'll explain it on the other. And I'm convinced that if I don't get an answer this side of heaven, what I experience in the pain and the crises and the afflictions that I have to face now will only make heaven that much sweeter. And then he'll be able to say, and this is what I was doing. And I know you didn't see it, but in that moment, it wasn't even for you. It was for the 40 people over there or later on that would see what you did in the midst of that crisis or affliction or pain and how you impacted one who impacted 20 and on to 20 more. It wasn't about you in that moment. And oh, my heart hurt for you there. But praise God, he's faithful in that whole process. Where she could look and say, okay, he's afflicted me. The Almighty has caused me to be bitter. Friends, what I'm thankful for in that passage and her honesty is that it shows this. She never left him. He was still the topic of her conversation. Which meant that he was still the front of her mind. And then we come to this last verse in verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Don't you love that verse? You're like, don't get it. I didn't either. I'm like, oh, it's just closing down the narrative. There's nothing in it. Guys, I gotta keep reminding myself, there is something in every verse There is something in every sentence God wants to reveal. It's just gonna take my lifetime and the rest of eternity for him to explain all of it. That last sentence, doesn't it give you a glimmer of hope? For 10 years, this is what she's experienced. They left because there was a famine. For 10 years, she's gone through all this loss, all this stuff that's caused her bitterness. Doesn't that last sentence seem like there's a glimmer of hope? And they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the beginning of Harvey, I'm sorry, Harvey, at the beginning of barley harvest. Like at the beginning, where there was no food, now there is. Doesn't it seem like everything changed? Like all of a sudden, you can kind of look in the future and there's something coming. But for 10 years, she didn't know that something was coming. And as we continue to go through the book of Ruth, we're going to see what the ultimate coming was. I wrote this in my notes. I said, the providence of God that causes you to frown is just as good as the providence of God that causes you to smile. The providence of God that causes you to frown is just as good as the providence of God that causes you to smile. Maybe not in the moment, but overall, we can trust God and his providence in everything 
with all that's going on around the world and all the things that we're facing individually or in families, with everything going on, remember, he saw a man in Bethlehem. Just one guy in one place. As the worship team comes back up, let me read the words of this sweet woman back in 1905. Let me read it again. Why would I feel discouraged and why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? And my constant friend is he, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. And I sing because I'm happy. Guys, just hold on to that for a second. It's like, this is in scripture, I know. But she says, why do I feel discouraged? So I'm in the midst of my discouragement. I'm coming to this realization. What's I'm going to do? I'm going to sing because I'm ultimately happy. I sing because I'm free. How can I do this? For his eyes on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Friends, how could this be true? Brian, I know that's a person who wrote a lyric to a song but what if we read it from scripture? In Romans chapter 8, 31 to 39, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Hold on to this, friends. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, who indeed is interceding for us. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You're like, oh, that sounds like we're defeated. And what would Paul then say to that? No. No, in all things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He loved us? Yeah. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Guys, you know what that reminds me of? His eye is on the ordinary. His eye is on the ordinary. And I know he watches me. Friends, as we close into this last song, and I know that this will be a little bit, um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a challenge, I get. And I'm asking some that need to, to be vulnerable and humble and honest. But I, I've told you, I want to continue to move us as a community into prayer. And not just to pray before a service in the middle of one at the end, but I'm saying to be a community that prays for one another Guys, you know what I believe unifies a church more than anything? It's when we pray together. We pray for one another. 
You ever had that experience where somebody shares something with you and you pray for them and all of a sudden you have this connection with them because they let you in a little bit? And I know it's a little bit of a challenge, but I'm gonna ask, as I, as I pray, I would love if anyone, anything that I've said in this message, if you're sitting there going, yeah, I need prayer. And you don't have to say anything of what it is. It's up to you. But as we pray, and you're saying, I need, I need prayer, I'm gonna ask you to stand. And then what's gonna happen, I'm just gonna ask those of you who are around them or those who, just, those who are usually on the sides, they love praying with people. If you see someone, just go up and start praying for them during this last song. It's like, if you, and if you don't get to sing the, sing the words to the last song, I think that God's okay. Like we're gonna sing if we're not praying out loud with a person and then you're gonna be singing this sweet melody called prayer. So I know that for some, it's like, this is a little too much and I know it's a challenge, but I'm just gonna ask you, would you trust us just to love you and to pray for you and to, play, and to pray with you? And they say, well, I, don't, I just can't. Then don't, it's okay. There's no guilt. But is there anybody here that says, I just, I would like prayer. And you don't even have to walk to the sides. You just get to stand right where you are. Does anybody, if you like prayer, would you just stand up? A few of you, awesome, just stay right where you are. Anyone else? Okay, wonderful in the back. Awesome. Say, I just need prayer. Wonderful. Okay, so here's what I'm going to ask. As I pray, for those of you that feel comfortable, and it could be those that are around you, if you want to pray for them, you can. If others, if you say, I want to, I'm going after them because you just got to pray. Man, would you go up to them and just pray with them? Just put their arm around them and... Be family. We're gonna be family. So as I begin to pray, if you, for those of us, would you, for those that want to pray, would you go up to them and circle them and pray with them? And then as we go into this last song, let's worship Jesus, who is sovereign, and His sovereignty is still sovereign, even when it feels like it's the dark side of it. He's still good. Let's pray, okay? Father, I thank you. I thank you that you were so good. And God, even when I don't see the goodness in the middle of it, and I don't see the goodness in the beginning of it, God, I thank you that you'll make it obviously good when you're done with it. God, I thank you that you see us individually not just a group, but individually. Father, for those who are standing, oh God, Holy Spirit, would you comfort them? And would you bring peace to them? And would you remind them that this is not something that you did not know? Would they find the joy that comes with knowing that even the dark side of the sovereign providence of God is still good. God, help them, encourage them. God, for those who just didn't want to stand, I pray the same thing over them. God, thank you that we can be real with you and real with each other. And God, thank you for a passage that I feel like I could have just looked over, but listening to somebody else teach it, and I'm so thankful for what he spoke because it really did impact a lot of what 
I felt like you were wanting to share today. God, I thank you that you see one person in one place, that you see us. So God, thank you and help us to trust you as we wait and see what it is that you do. God, to you be all the praise, all the glory and all the honor for you alone are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all of Christ's followers say, amen.